0: All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. The title to our message this morning is A God centered Exodus for a man centered world. And as you're turning to Exodus 9, please remember that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy of rain this morning. And we know in your word that you have said that the snow and the rain, when you send it forth from the heavens, that it will accomplish that which you have sent it forth to do. It'll bring up green plants and fruit. And Lord, we thank you that your promise is that when you send forth your word, it will succeed in what you have sent it forth to do. So Lord, vindicate your promise now. May your word find fertile soil in our hearts. May it bear 30, 60, and 100 fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So I failed to mention that, if you notice, we're not handling a plague this morning because in this preface to the seventh plague, it has the longest explanation of any of the plagues. And it's the center of the Exodus account. When I came to Reformed theology 15 years ago, uh, the most immediate challenge that I had, and and maybe many of you had this same challenge, was trying to get over the the language barrier. There's a whole new language, isn't there, to coming to Reformed theology. Words like catechism, uh, words like sovereignty of God, Words like doctrines of grace. But the concept that was most abstract to me, that was the most difficult to put my hands around, was the phrase God-centered. Um, because I thought, how could any Christian not be God-centered? I thought those two things go together hand and glove. But actually... What I've discovered since is that not being God-centered is the most natural thing that we sinners do. We live and breathe and move in a man-centered world. That's what sin is. Sin is man-centeredness. Sin has ruined us for the beauty of God, the presence of God the excellencies of God, the truth of God, the goodness of God. Sin displaces God from the center. And I actually think that for that reason, this passage might be the most important passage in the entire book of Exodus because it reveals the reason why God does everything that he does. Why um, did God liberate Israel? What was his main goal in Exodus? What was God's main goal in sending Jesus Christ into the world? What is God's main goal in your life? And that answer is always immutably and invincibly the same. That brings us to our big idea. Everything God does in the cosmos is for the sake of his own Name. So let's look first of all at our doctrine. Verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, you, you can hear the resolve There's a change. There's a shift. There's this last cycle of plagues that is about to begin. For this time, I will send all my plagues. Last time we saw that that God officially, judicially hardened Pharaoh's heart. And now he's announcing that the end of the matter is determined. 14. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you, yourself on you yourself the hebrew here means on your heart Uh, God's going to target Pharaoh's inner man now Thus far in the plagues Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians suffered physically But now he's announcing that Pharaoh's going to also suffer in his heart He's going to suffer spiritually And we see this almost immediately After uh, the last plague After the seventh plague Here in chapter 9 verse 27 Pharaoh says This time I have sinned He confesses sin before God Uh, The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. And he says the same thing after the eighth plague. I have sinned against the Lord your God, therefore forgive my sin. Please, only this once, plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. The point is, is that from this point forward, Pharaoh is terrified. Uh, when, When God punishes the wicked, he doesn't just aim at their bodies, but he aims at their Conscience at their heart Why has God determined These final plagues Look at the end of verse 14 So that you may know That there is none Like me In all the earth One of the most helpful exercises In biblical interpretation Is to ask the question What is not being said here? What is God not saying? Notice he's not saying, I will send all my plagues so that you will finally let my people go. He doesn't say that. In fact, we misunderstand the entire book of Exodus if we don't get this point. God did not send the plagues to secure Israel's freedom. That's not why he sent the plagues. He sent the plagues mainly so that Pharaoh and all of Egypt would know that there was no one like the Lord God in all the earth. And this is evident from verse 15. Look what he says. For by now, I could have put out my hand. In other words, the easiest thing would have been to just put out my hand And struck you and your people with pestilence, the same plague that caused the death of the cattle. And you would have been cut off from the earth. God is clarifying all of his actions in this sentence. God didn't need the ten plagues to free his people, he could have spoken one word, and instantly Israel would have been freed and Egypt destroyed. If God's main goal in the Exodus was to liberate his people, he could have softened Pharaoh's heart to do so. Couldn't have he? He could have converted Pharaoh. He could have converted all of Egypt. Proverbs 21:1 says that the, the heart the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. But God didn't soften Pharaoh's heart. He hardened it. And here's the rub. In doing so, he delayed Israel's suffering. He prolonged their rescue. Why? Well, that brings us to the central verse, I think, in the entire book. God says to Pharaoh in verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. Paul takes this verse, quotes it in Romans 9, 16, as a proof of God's predestination of all men. God predestined Pharaoh, meaning that God unchangeably ordained from all eternity everything that happened in Pharaoh's life. That's what verse 16 means when it says, uh, I have raised you up. Pharaoh is not the, the product of time and chance. He's not the product of evolution. He's not the product of Egypt's gods. Pharaoh was created by the Lord God. He was predestined by the Lord God. He was sustained by the Lord God throughout his life to fulfill this very role in human history. So what that means is that Yahweh wrote Pharaoh's story before the foundation of the world. As one author says here, we face again the fact of God's absolute predestination of all things and man's responsibility. Speaking about becoming reformed, I think that's one of the most difficult mountains to climb, isn't it? How can God be absolutely sovereign over all things and yet man still be responsible for his sin? But this is actually one of the most wonderful proofs of the infinity of God. What does the scripture say? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts Than your thoughts. See, if we could understand all of the ways of God, then his ways would not be higher than our ways. This is a wonderful proof that God is infinite, eternal, incomprehensible, higher than the heavens are above the earth. This is not a, a mystery to untangle. We don't have to untangle it. What we need to do is what Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord, he is God. So then what is this purpose then of predestinating Pharaoh? We only read the first part of the verse. Halfway through verse 16, his purpose is clear to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God predestined Pharaoh's rebellion so that God could show his power, not in one plague, but in 10 plagues so that God's name would be famous in all the earth. That's that's the main purpose of the Exodus. If you you forget everything else today, remember this one thing. Here's the main purpose of the Exodus. God was pursuing global fame. Above every other consideration, he wanted his name to be proclaimed. That word in the Hebrew, it means to commend, to give great praise, to recount the greatness of God. God wanted every tribe and nation on earth to hear what he did in Egypt, and he wanted them to be astonished. He wanted the fear of God to enter into their hearts. He wanted them to know that there is no other God who rules over the heavens and the earth. And this is precisely what happened. Connect, so, so one of the, the issues that we often have is we fail to connect this book with The next book, and then the next book, and the next book. But the biblical authors don't. Forty years later, when the Israelites are entering into the promised land, the very first Jerichoite that they meet, the spies, is Rahab the harlot. And she said in Joshua 2.10, she helped them. She helped the spies. Why? She says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Likewise, the Gibeonites uh, entered into a treaty with Israel because, Joshua 9, 8 and 9, it says, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. That's 40 years later. 400 years later... When Samuel the prophet was speaking in Israel, Israel came into a battle with the Philistines. And we read in... Chapter 2 Samuel 4, 7, and 8, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God is coming to the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. The plagues in the book of Exodus They formed the skeleton structure, as it were, of the whole Old Testament, of the greatness of God. These entered into Israel's lore. They shaped the ceremonial laws. Think of the Passover lamb. That's the 10th plague. Uh, And they formed the very songs that they sang. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 135, Psalm 136. But these plagues are still making a name for God today. Children, boys and girls, can you think of an animated movie that shows the plagues of Egypt? Nobody? Not one? Prince of Egypt. Um that movie exists. Because, as one author put it, the plagues made God famous. Just do a Google search. How many books and movies and YouTube videos, even YouTube videos that are trying to unexplain the plagues, have been made concerning the Exodus? That was, that was 3,500 years ago. God's name is still famous because of the plagues. And that brings us to our doctrine this morning that everything that God does in the cosmos is for the sake of his own name, which is the same thing as saying for his praise or for his glory. It's not just the exodus, but the totality of every act without exception God has done for the sake of his name. C- consider five proofs. Proof number one. God redeemed Judah out of Babylon for the sake of his name. Isaiah 48, 9, and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger, meaning I won't destroy you. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? God here is saying that if he had another motive, if his motive was just the salvation of Judah and not for his own namesake, he would be sharing his glory with somebody else. He'd be polluting his name. Proof number two, the apostle Paul Suffered for the sake of God's name. Acts 9, 15 and 16. God says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was stoned, lashed, you know, 39 times, uh, shipwrecked. Uh, beat, locked up in jail. Why? For the sake of God's name. Proof number three, God has redeemed us Gentiles for the sake of his name. Acts 15, 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his own name. Proof number four, We are directed to pray in all of our prayers For the sake of God's name Remember the first petition in the Lord's prayer In Matthew 6, 9 Is Hallowed be your name And then every other petition after that Your kingdom come, your will be done Daily bread, forgive us of our sins Lead us not into temptation Is all subordinate so that God will get all the glory Proof number five, and for this one, you have to turn to 1 John 2, 12. Proof number five, our sins are forgiven for the sake of God's name. When I became reformed 15 years ago, it was this verse, it was this verse that shook me out of a man-centered view. Why did Jesus die And evangelicals answer, to forgive us of our sin. Amen. That's correct. But it's not ultimate. It's correct, but it's not ultimate. 1 John 2, 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God forgives our sins for the same reason that he sent the plagues on Pharaoh so that his name would be proclaimed on all the earth. Countless other biblical examples could be given. This is what it means to be God-centered, to see that God predestines and works all events. He accomplishes all events for one end, for one end, to bring glory to himself. So that's our doctrine that everything that God does in the cosmos is for the sake of his own name. Let's turn to our duty. And our first duty is just to answer what I think is the probably the toughest objection that any of us have to answer. Imagine for a moment that you were in Egypt. You're one of those Hebrew slaves. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather all died with whip marks on their back and chains on their feet. And now you... And your child Have whip marks on their back And chains on your feet And this Moses guy shows up And now you discover that God could Have released you from bondage some time ago But he hasn't He's delayed your suffering Why? because he wanted to make sure that his name would become famous in the earth. Or picture Wang Yi, the Chinese pastor who was arrested in 2018. He has several years left on his term. His wife and his children have suffered, he has suffered. God could have arranged him for, to spend no time in prison at all, but God wanted his name to be made famous through his prison sentence. Or you have cancer, or your spouse has left you, or your child dies, or any spirit crushing scenario, and God delays, and God allows you to suffer. Why? Because he wants to make his name famous? What kind of a God does that? How are those the actions of a loving God? You see, in our man-centered world, ruined by sin, we have been poisoned into thinking that God is only loving towards us if he makes much of us. That's the poison. We think that that God is only loving towards us if he makes much of us. We think that God's priorities should be us, our needs, our priorities. And the first problem with that thinking is that it makes God an idolater. It makes God an idolater. You're an idolater, but it makes God one. If God makes man his number one concern, then God makes us his God, and he has broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Whoever has the first priority in the universe is God. If man has that priority, then man is God, and God must serve him. And dear Christian, we know that's wrong. We know that's wrong. But that brings us then to our second problem with that scenario. Our second problem is that we don't know what love is. Or better yet, we don't understand how God must love us if it's going to be good for us. Think hard for for a moment. How must God love us? How must he love us? What do our souls need more than anything else? What do our souls need? Our soul needs to see God. Our lives are are absolutely worthless if we don't get to feast on him. God loves us most when he shows us more of who he is. Mark that. God loves us most when he reveals to our soul more of who he is. This is the testimony of scripture, Psalm 27, 4. The psalmist says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. He's only asking for one thing. What one thing would you ask for? One thing have I asked of the Lord that I would seek after all the days of my life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to gaze upon his beauty. The psalmist only wanted one thing. He wanted to stare at God, to behold him, to feast with his eyes on the beauty of the Lord. To see God was the psalmist's life. It was his diadem. It was his wealth, his food, his everlasting treasure. He didn't want anything else. Or think of Job. Job. The whole book of Job is this picture of this spirit-crushing anguish. And at the end of the book, he is cured instantly. Not because God restored all of his wealth and his children, and he made Job the center of his affections, but because for four chapters, God unpacked his wisdom, his beauty, his providence, his power, his redemption. At the end of those four chapters, Job said, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And I repent in dust and ashes. What did Jesus pray for us when he went to the cross? What what did he want the Father to give us? Because he prayed for us. What did he want the Father to give us more than anything else? Did he pray that we would have an easy life? Did he pray that we would have a life without suffering? No, he, he prayed above all other things that we would see his glory. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. And Jesus died so that that prayer would be answered. He suffered under the wrath of God for man's sins. He was nailed to a tree. He was tormented by Satan. He was hated by men. He became a curse all for this one end that we might see him and behold him. That was all that mattered. Dear congregation, this is how God loved Israel. He delayed their rescue. He prolonged their suffering. And in doing so, what was he doing? In plague after plague, he was revealing his omnipotence, his wisdom, his justice, his faithfulness, his mercy, his steadfast love. These these plagues, as it were, became the food, the nourishment of Israel for all redemptive history. One author says here, Generations later, the great-great-grandchildren of these Israelites would yet be nursing on the milk of God's word, recounting his glorious deeds. God's glory became the nourishment, the strength, the comfort of his children. That's precisely what Psalm 78.4 says. The psalmist says, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord." And his might and the wonders that he has done. So we need to know that the way God loves us is by showing us more of himself. That is love. Our second duty is to comfort ourselves. I didn't even touch yet on all those other things, persecution, cancer, death. What do we do when God delays and it leads to more suffering? Well, dear congregation, that delay may certainly include more suffering, but it will produce in you a greater vision of God, of his name, of his kingdom, of his purposes. Your greatest need is not to be relieved of your suffering. God does promise that. In Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. That is promised. But that is not your greatest need now. Now. Young adults, I especially want to help you see this. And yet, you young adults are in a, a weird time bubble. You're no longer children, but you're in that in-between stage. You don't have a family. You're, you're, you feel stuck, perhaps. Perhaps you want to be married. You don't know what career you should pursue. You, you feel lost. You feel lonely, like you're wandering on a ship lost at sea, and you're, you're asking God, God, what are you doing in my life? Young adults, how can you find comfort in this passage? Well, just like Israel, you are a slave. Israel were slaves of Egypt. Egypt. But your slavery is so much more delightful. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. This is one of the major identifications in the New Testament of a Christian that he is a slave. First Corinthians seven twenty-two. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Or Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God. So what does that mean to be a slave to God? First, it means that you do not own yourself. Christ owns you. And he bought you with the highest price possible, namely his own blood. No slave has ever been bought at a higher price than the blood of Christ. Second, it means this, young person, that God is not going to waste your life. By the way, that applies to old people as well. If Christ purchased you with the cost of his own life, do you think he's going to be careless with your slavery? Look to Israel. What did God accomplish through them? He put put them in this incredibly painful circumstance, and and then he delayed, and then he delayed, and then he delayed, and then he delayed. But what was the end of the matter? His name was proclaimed in all the earth. Take courage. Take courage. God's name will be made great in your life. It has to be. It is invincibly the case. God has never failed in one of his directives. He will be made famous in your life. And you will discover that that is the thing that your heart longs for most. Our third duty is a warning. God tells Pharaoh in verse 17 in our passage, you, to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself. Pharaoh is the typical unconverted man. He exalts himself. He is man-centered. He's focused only on himself, his concerns, his desires. He's a narcissist. To be converted to Christ means that you will want God's name proclaimed, exalted, loved, adored. But to remain unconverted means that you're still exalting yourself like Pharaoh. So dear friend, if that's you, if you're still exalting yourself, if you're still unconverted, then we don't have to guess what your end will be. Pharaoh was swallowed up in the Red Sea. Likewise, those who refuse to come to Jesus Christ, the one savior of the world, will be swallowed up on the last day. Dear unconverted friend, is that what you want your life to be? Is that how you want your life to end? Are you satisfied with living a man-centered life. I know you're not. That's the most miserable type of life. Your heart was made for the exaltation of God. Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in Him. It hungers and thirsts for God. Don't perish like Pharaoh. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, be a part of the covenant. The promise for you is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. Embrace the promise this morning. Let's look finally then at our delight. I think that the the most helpful book in our generation that deals with this whole subject is Desiring God by John Piper. That book shows us that we do not have to choose between being God-centered and being happy. The glory of God is the happiness of the Christian. I remember when I was in pastoral training back in 2009, and this clicked for me. I wanted to be a pastor so bad, and it was stressing me out. I had to go get scoped because my acid reflux had gotten so bad in my chest. My jaw hurt all the time because I was grinding my teeth in bed. Um, I, I felt deep down that I would be disappointed if I didn't become a pastor, putting my identity in that. And then I read Piper's book which was just biblical theology and I was set free. If I never became a pastor, I remember right where I was. I was walking through my bedroom door and I passed my nightstand and it it was just it all came to me. If I never become a pastor, I would be satisfied. Because I know, I know that God will be glorified in my life, and that is all joy. That is joy. Not what I do, not who I become, not who likes me, not reputation, not works, but God's glory being done in my life. And I was set free. So I charge you this morning, dear congregation, seek your highest joy in the name of God. Remember, our big idea, everything God does in the cosmos is for the sake of his own name. And so therefore, our duty is that everything we do ought to be for the sake of his name. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. How do we do this? Well, step one is to ask Who is God? If I were to ask you, boys and girls, who is your mom? You would probably say something like, well, her name is thus and she's this old and her characteristics are thus. Do you know what the characteristics of God are? See, we can't glorify him. We can't seek his glory if we don't know who he is. Fortunately, we have this thing called a catechism that's extremely helpful. Shorter catechism question number four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So step one is to know God. Go do a study of the scripture. Grab each one of those attributes and dive deep. What does it mean that God is a spirit? What does it mean that he's omnipotent and unchanging? What does it mean that he's good? Step two, praise God and thank him for who he is. The benefit of studying God's attributes is that you're then given fuel to praise him, to thank him, to commune with him. Go look in the book of Psalms. How do the, the, does the psalmist pray? He, he prays so differently than we do often, doesn't he? Isn't it to our shame sometimes? What does he pray? He says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I will give to the Lord the thanks, do his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. He is God-centered in his prayers. Step three, make God the center of everything in your life, of your relationships, of your work, of your family life, of your politics, of your economics, of your education, of your entertainment. I remember when I was learning this 12 years ago and I was asked, or I was told, hey, you need to, you need to, Preach the gospel. You need to share the glory of God with your kids when you're spanking them. That's bizarre. How does that work? You will love God. No, not like that. Um, The the point is is that we are to ground everything in a biblical, God-centered worldview. So we discipline them. We inform them of, of why they transgressed. And then after, we assure them and give them the promise of God's love. That blew me away. Christians, are your interactions with non-believers God-centered in your conduct and speech? Are you a city on a hill? See, we are either exalting ourselves like Pharaoh, being man-centered, or we're seeking to exalt God. There's no neutral territory. And then finally, step four, repent in a God-centered way repent in a God-centered way because we can repent in a man-centered way. My favorite kids book um, is The Priest Priest with Dirty Clothes by R.C. Sproul. And in that book there was a priest named Jonathan and he ruined his priestly clothes. He fell into a mud puddle and he wasn't allowed to preach before the great king until he could get his clothes clean. But No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get them clean. And the bishop told him that he could not earn a new set of clothes. And so there was no way for him to appear before the king. But then the great prince appeared. And the great prince gave him his own clothes. For the uninitiated, that's king is God the father, the prince is Jesus Christ, the robes are his imputed righteousness that we receive upon belief. So the story ends. Jonathan is is filled with joy because he was then allowed to come into the presence of the king. And so he says to the great prince, how can I ever thank you for being so kind to me? The prince said, if you are really thankful, if you want to show me that you love me, then keep. All the commandments that I give you. Oh, I will, Jonathan said. I want to be good enough to wear your clothes. And then the prince said, But you cannot be good enough, Jonathan. You must live your whole life trusting in my goodness while you wear my clothes. Beloved, that is so key. Jesus, the great prince, he wants us to obey his commandments. How can we glorify the name of God? How can we have his name proclaimed in all the earth if we're not seeking to obey his commandments? It's impossible. That's what it means to be God-centered. But here's the problem. We'll never be good enough. And we'll never be God-centered enough. If we repent something like this, Well, I'll just try harder. I'll do better. I'll do more. That will atone for my transgressions. That's man-centered. This is God-centered repentance. God, I have failed again. I repent. Please forgive me. And I know you will. Because my righteousness does not come from me, it comes from your son. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. Friends, that is God-centered repentance. That is a repentance that proclaims God's name in all the world, that God saves sinners, that God sustains sinners, that God satisfies all the sins of sinners through the sacrifice of his son. Dear congregation, that's what God is calling us to do. Do everything so that God's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we thank you for your delay in the exodus. We thank you that humanity has been nourished and fed because you decided to not rescue Israel immediately, but you poured out plague after plague after plague so that we could see that there was no other God on earth except for the Lord God. Lord, may that be true in our life. Help us to repent in a God-centered way of any other gods that we have let creep in Let us return to you, return to you, the center of all things. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.